0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now covering in this audio Revelation chapter 13 verses 10 through 18. Our subject will be the land beast. The land beast, the false prophet, refers to apostate Israel. Now our context is this, in the first part of Revelation 13 verses 1 through 10, we talked about the sea beast, which is the Roman Empire. Our broader context is this, we're still... Getting ready for the seven bowls, the seven chalices, the seventh trumpet has sounded. A couple chapters back, I forgot exactly where, but there's a lot of stuff going on now between the seventh, between the sixth trumpet and the, uh, between the seventh trumpet, which is the seven chalices. We're getting ready for the first chalice to start, but we had not gotten there yet. So we start with verse 11, Revelation 13, that I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, out of the land, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. I'm going to call this the land beast since he came out of the land. And again, I'm using the translation of gay as land and not earth because land stands for the land of Israel. Now, Revelation itself identifies the land beast as the quote-unquote false prophet, so we can sort of capitalize false prophet, F.P., Revelation 16.13 says this, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming from the dragon's mouth, the dragon's the devil, from the beast mouth, and that beast is the land beast from the mouth, excuse me, that's the sea beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet, which is the land beast. So false prophet equals land beast. We just need to remember that for right now. Revelation 19.20, But the beast was taking a prisoner, that's the sea beast, the Roman Empire, and along with it the false prophet, that's the land beast. So the sea beast and the land beast are... Associated together in several places in Revelation. Sometimes he's called the false prophet, but it's actually the land beast. Now, this false prophet represents all the false prophets that Jesus foretold would infest Israel before the destruction of 8070. He said that in his Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verses 5 and 11, verse 5. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many, verse 11. And many false prophets shall rise, shall deceive many. So we're going to see that this land beast, standing for apostate Israel, is characterized by lying prophecy, false messiahs, not recognizing the true messiah. Why does he have two horns like a lamb? Well, because false prophets are seductive. They appear to be gentle as lambs. For example, in Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus said, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. And so here we have a false prophet. He's got a lamb, a little speaking, nice, sweet, gentle things, but he spoke as a dragon. Well, looking sweet and gentle, but speaking as a dragon, because he spoke the words of the devil. He spoke deceptively, subtly, seductively, as a liar, slanderously, blasphemously. Now, here's a lot of examples of how apostate Jews spoke against the early church. Acts 6, 19 and four, through 14 opposition arose, however, from some members of the freedmen's synagogue. This is a collection of Jews here composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia. And they began to argue with Stephen, the first martyr. They were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. So there again, there's false prophecy speaking lies. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came and seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. Lies. For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom that Moses handed down to us. Lies. All courtesy of the Freedmen's Synagogue. A bunch of apostate Jews. Acts 13.6 When they, that's Paul and Barnabas, on the first journey, had traveled the whole island, the island of Cyprus as far as Paphos, that's on the western coast of Cyprus, if I recall, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So here's a false prophet, a Jewish false prophet. Paul deals with him by saying in verse 10, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, and enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Another example of Jewish false prophecy in the first century. Acts 14, 2-5, But the unbelieving Jews, this is at Iconium, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews, who of course were fighting the apostles, and others with the apostles. Verse 5, When an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, dot, dot, dot. So the Gentiles and the Jews, working together, tried to stone the apostles. So you see the opposition of the Jews, the apostate Jews, the non-believing Jews, the blasphemous Jews against the early church, Acts 17, verses 5 through 8. But the Jews, these are the Jews at Thessalonica, became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city, attacking Jason's house. They searched for them to bring them out of the public assembly, searched for the apostles. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and come down here too. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So there's some false prophecy for you, some false words from the courtesy of the Thessalonican Jews. Then we see in Acts 185 and 6, we'll look at the Corinthian Jews. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they, that's the Jews, resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And then in verse 12, he says, While Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. There's the Jews attacking the, the apostles of the Christian church. Acts 19:8 and 9. Now we're at Ephesus. Hop the Aegean Sea now, going over to Ephesus. Paul entered the synagogue, that's the Jewish synagogue at Ephesus, and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, that's Jewish people in the synagogue, he withdrew from them, dot, dot, dot. Acts twenty one twenty seven. when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, this is in Jerusalem now, after the third journey, some Jews from the province of Asia saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and seized them. So once again, the Jews are after Paul. Acts 24.1, five days later, Ananias the high priest came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. That's the Roman governor. I can't even remember whether it's Felix Festus, But at any rate, uh, the Roman governor is being regaled by the Jerusalem Jews as to what a horrible man Paul was. Acts 25.2-3. And this is before Festus, another Roman official. The chief priest and the leaders of the Jews, these are the Jerusalem Jews, presented their case against Paul to him. They appealed, asking for a favor against Paul that Festus summon him to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. They were in Caesarea. Festus was in Caesarea, wanted to get Paul to come back to Jerusalem so they could kill him. When he arrived, verse 7 in Acts 25, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges they were not able to prove, asked Festus. When Festus had arrived, the Roman officials, so you see the Jews in cahoots with the Romans trying to stomp out the Christian church. So all of this is symbolized by the land beast, the false prophet who spoke as a dragon, but he looked like a lamb. The, sea bee- the land beast who came out of the land. We now go to Revelation chapter 13, verse 12. He, that's the land beast, exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the land of those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal one was healed. Now this verse shows how the Jews, the Jewish leaders, were gung-ho to subject themselves to the Roman Empire. They allied themselves with the Roman Empire in their efforts to extirpate Christianity. They sucked up to the Romans, in other words. Especially the Sadducees, who didn't want to lose their political power, so this land beast is keeping the people in subjection to, subjection to the first beast, the sea beast. Sometimes the land beast is called the second beast because he, he's listed after the he's presented after the first beast. He exercises all the authority of the first beast. The Jews were constantly using the imperial power of Rome to persecute the Christians. Those scriptures I just read, and several of them, like Gallio, for example, and Corinth, several of them showed how the Jews went to the Roman civil authorities, the legal authorities, to try to persecute the Christians. So he, the land beast, exercised all the authority of the first beast, the sea beast, the Romans, in his, the sea beast, presence. Now, I mentioned that previous verse about how the Jews and the uh, Romans were in cahoots against the Christians. Let me take you through Acts and show this more fully, Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. For in fact in this city both Herod, Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel Gentiles people of Israel Herod and Pontius Pilate being the Gentiles and of course the people of Israel were the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders who had assembled there to stop the early apostles from testifying about Jesus they were in acts 4:27 assembled together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed well, this is actually a prayer to God they are assembled together against your God, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. This is unnamed members of the church in Jerusalem who are praying to God, and they mentioned that it's the Gentiles and the people of Israel working together. Acts 12, verses 1-3, through 3, about that time King Herod, that's the Gentile, King Herod working for the Romans, violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, that's James and John, the son of Zebedee, with a sword. I think this was in the 40s AD, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Notice how the Roman king Herod is working with the Jews because he saw that it pleased the Jews. The Jews said, hey, Herod, kill the Christian. That's all right with us. You're on our side, King Herod. This shows the land beast sucking up to the sea beast. Acts fourteen two through 5, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, all these Gentiles, of course, were Roman subjects. We're talking about the Gentiles in Iconium on the first missionary journey and the unbelieving Jews in Iconium. So they, that was Paul and Barnabas, stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord to testify to the message of his grace. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews, and others with the apostles, when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rules to mistreat and stone them. So you see the Gentiles and Jews are working together in close coordination to try to snuff out the Christian message. That fits perfectly with our image in Revelation and John here of the sea beast and the land beast working together. Later on, we're going to see the land beast making an image to the sea beast. Idolatry, idolatry, worshiping the sea beast, using the sea beast, using the Romans to kill the Christians or to persecute the Christians. Acts 17, verses 5 through 8. But the Jews, these are Jews in Thessalonica, became jealous and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Attacked Jason's house, they searched for them to bring them out To the public assembly, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, "These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too, and Jason has welcomed them. They are all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees." Okay, so Jason, the Christian, was dragged before the city officials, and of course, the city was in Thessalonica was run by the Romans. And what did the Jews say? They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decrees. They're appealing to the Roman Empire, to whom they appeal for their authority. Acts 18 verses 12 to 13. This is in Corinth. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's Gallio, the Roman official. He's Seneca, the famous Roman philosopher's brother. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, that's Greece, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal, which is the Roman tribunal in Corinth. So we got the Jews dragging the Christians before the Roman tribunal once again, using the authority of the Romans to persecute the Christians. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, so we don't forget what we're talking about here, Romans 13:12. Remember, he, the land beast, exercises all the authority of the first beast. The Jews are exercising all the authority of the Romans because they are appealing to the Roman government as they persecute the Christians. Acts 21:11. He came to us, took thus Agabus, the prophet took Paul's belt, tied his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him over to the Gentiles. The Jews do the binding and delivering, and the Gentiles do the legal persecution of the Christians, working hand in hand. Acts 24, 1-9. Five days later, Ananias the high priest came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. This is after the third journey. Paul started right in Jerusalem. Lysias, the commander, sent him to Felix, the first Roman governor there in Caesarea. These men, Ananias and Tertullus, and some Jewish elders, presented their case against Paul to the governor. There you have the Jews working with the Romans. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, We enjoy great peace because of you and reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. Suck up, suck up. Eddie Haskell-type suck up talk. Most excellent Felix. And then, just to save some space here, the Jews go on to accuse Paul. They find him to be a plague, an agitator, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He tried to desecrate the temple, which is a lie. And so we apprehended him. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the attack, alleging that these things were true. Joined in the attack along with Tertullus, their hired lawyer, Jews and the Romans, working together against the Christians, Acts 25, 1 through 3. Three days after Festus, that's the new Roman governor that took Felix's place in Caesarea. Three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him and they appealed asking for a favor against Paul that Festus summoned him to Jerusalem. Paul's still in Caesarea. They were in fact preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. I've already mentioned that verse. There you have the the leaders of the Jews The big shots of the Sanhedrin saying, let's bring Paul back from Caesarea to Jerusalem so we can kill him on the way. So you see, this is very clear. The Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Romans, the land beast and the sea beast work together. The Jews exercising the authority of the Romans in order to kill the Christians. It fits perfectly. So he, the land beast, exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. In other words, the land beast is in the presence of the, of the sea beast. Now, what does it mean to be in the presence of someone? Well, a true prophet stands in the presence of the Lord. First Samuel 1 Samuel 1.22, Hannah did not go up and explain to her husband, talking about Samuel, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence. If you're going to represent God, you stand in his presence. 1 Samuel 2.18, Samuel served in the Lord's presence. First King seventeen one now Elijah the Tishbite as the Lord God of Israel lives in whose presence I stand. So if you represent someone, you stand in his presence. Jonah one three, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Uh, verse ten in Jonah one. Then the men were seized. These are the men on the boat with Jonah were seized by a great fear and said to him, What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence. So, a true prophet stands in the presence of God. Well, here we've got the false prophet, the land beast, Israel, standing in the presence of their God, the Roman Empire, or the Roman Emperor, standing for the Roman Empire. We go now to Revelation 13, verses 13 and 14. He, that's the land beast. Israel, apostate Israel, performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down of heaven to the land in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the land because of the signs it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the land to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword has come to life. All right, the beast that's mentioned here is the Roman beast, the sea beast. He had, he had, in an earlier passage, we learned that he had one of his heads wounded and it was a fatal wound, actually looked like he was going to die, but then he came back to life. Several interpretations of that. Some people say it's Vespasian who, when the Roman Empire was wounded during the year four emperors in AD 69, Vespasian came and restored the empire, brought it back to life. I think the best interpretation, though, is by Chilton, which says that the fatal wound was Christianity, getting ready to kill the Roman Empire, as prophesied in the book of Daniel, when the stone hit the foot of the of the four iron creature or image which stood for the roman empire then that became a big 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 mountain and covered the whole earth christianity spreading and that's what was happening the romans were going down and then all of a sudden the church apostatized and got cold there in the 60s right before 80 70 and so the beast came back to life after it was almost killed by the advance of the gospel but anyway Whatever you, However you interpret that, the point is, is the beast that we're talking about here. There's the land beast in the presence of another beast, and that other beast is the sea beast. We've got to be careful to keep these beasts apart as you read. Now, this land beast is performing great signs. He even makes fire come down out of heaven. Now, this isn't the vision. This is not literally in the land of Israel. It's in the vision. Fire comes down out of heaven. What's the purpose of that? Well, the purpose is to give a sign, just like the false prophets of Baal were trying to do but failed, if you recall, when they were prancing around Jezebel's altar trying to get some fire to come down and light the wood. That would have had to have been lightning, probably. But this is in the vision, so John could have actually seen fire coming down out of the land beast's mouth, for all I know, and he'd perform signs. He performs great signs, and the purpose of those signs is to deceive, verse 14. He deceives those who dwell on the land. So all the Jews living in Israel were deceived by the false system of Jewish religion there. Now, there's a lot of false Jewish prophets even in the book of Acts. Acts 8, 9 through 24 is the famous Simon Magus. Now, he was called a Samaritan. He was a Samaritan, but the Encyclopedia Britannica says Samaritans are Jews, quote, Samaritan, member of a community of Jews, now nearly extinct, that claims to be related by blood to those Jews of ancient Samaria, who were not deported by the Assyrian conquerors of the kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. So, that means that Simon Magus was a Jewish prophet, and he was a famous one. He was famous even in secular history outside of the Bible. The Romans talked about him. He's got a great story, I, don't, I forgot it right now exactly, about how popular he was in Rome but he was a top dog Jewish false prophet. We see in Acts 13:6, 6, Elimus Bar-Jesus, another Jewish false prophet. When they, Paul and Barnabas, had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. But Saul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stayed straight at Elamas, That's his other name. He, that was his name by translation. And Paul lets him have it. You're full of deceit. A Jewish false prophet trying to deceive, just like the land beast is... Sending down, sending sending down fire from heaven as a sign in order to deceive those who dwell in the land. You notice he's called a false prophet. You notice he's Jewish, and you notice that he works signs because he's a sorcerer working a sign, working signs. We go now to well, we point out now that Jesus himself predicted miracle working false Jewish prophets in Matthew seven verses twenty two and twenty three said. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Aren't miracles a sign? So here we have people that are doing false prophecy and false signs. And Jesus says, I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. So, and Jesus was talking to Jews, if you recall. So you got Jews prophesying falsely and doing false miracles. Just like John says here, this lamb beast is going to do great signs. He's going to deceive signs of great miracles and he's going to deceive and it was given those signs to perform in the presence of the beast in other words working as the agent of the roman empire if you will in the presence of the sea beast the land beast was doing his signs now the land beast told all those who dwelt on the land all the jews to make an image to the beast now what's an image an image is an idol so basically the land beast is saying we want you to worship the roman empire jews which they did we have no king but caesar you remember that now some people object to this and saying, "Well, how can the sea be the land beast make an image since the Jews got rid of idolatry when they were in Babylon, five eighty six B.C. That was the end of idolatry for them. Well, this is in the in the vision. There's an image, but not actually in Israel. The idolatry. You can be an idolater without having a piece of gold and silver made into some kind of animal. I mean, Americans have idols, money, freedom, freedom, license. I should say. You know, lots of people have idols that aren't represented by literal idols. And here we have the same situation. The Roman empire is going to be an object of idolatrous worship by the Jewish leaders. They don't want to lose their power. They want to keep the power and authority of the Romans. We have no God but Caesar. When they were presented with the option of choosing Jesus, they chose Caesar. That is big time idolatry. So we go now to Revelation 13, verse 15. And it was given to him, that's the land beast, to give breath to the image of the beast, that's the sea beast. So there, if you, to keep all this straight, you see you got three things. you got the land beast, the sea beast, and then you got an image of the sea beast. So the way I always do this to keep it straight in my mind is say, okay, the land beast is on the Mediterranean shore on the beach there, and he's got an idol, and it looks just like the sea beast. So we have just this, it's a little idol of the sea beast, and then, of course, across the, cross going west as you cross the Mediterranean Sea, you get around Italy somewhere, you got the sea beast who actually came out of the sea over there. So you got the land beast, the sea beast, you got the land beast, the image of the sea beast, and the sea beast himself. So, it was given to the land beast to give breath to the image of the beast. And giving breath to something means to make it live. So, on the shores of the Mediterranean, the land beast breathes into that stone, that gold or silver image of the sea beast and makes it come to life. Again, this is in the vision, not actually. Now, normally idols are lifeless. For example, in Psalm 135, verses 15, 16, and 17, we read this. The idols of the nations are of silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak eyes but cannot see they have ears but cannot hear indeed there is no breath in their mouths but the apostate jews are so demonic they're giving life to the idolatry of the roman empire the jews were helping the pagans out by killing jesus the romans wanted to get rid of the christians and so did the jews and so they worked together and so the jews gave life to their idol normally a dead idol so you have a vicious idolatry coming into being here How serious this is! It says because as many as do not worship the image of the beast, i.e., the Roman Empire, any Jew that does not worship the Roman Empire is going to be killed. Now, of course, the main Jews, the Jews of interest that didn't worship the Roman Empire, were the Christian Jews. And what John says here in Revelation 13:15 is that all who do not worship the image of the beast, image of the sea beast, the Roman Empire, the land beast is going to kill them. The land beast is going to kill anybody that doesn't fall in line with idolatrous worship of the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor. Well, here's what the apostate Jews did to the early church. The synagogues organized economic boycotts against those refusing to submit to Caesar as Lord. And sometimes they even killed those who even dealt with those who refused to submit to Caesar. Now, that's a quote from David Chilton. I don't know what his sources are for that. I'll take his word for it. I would like to read further and find out exactly how that happened, when it happened. I'm not aware of any other historical references but we do know that there was huge jewish persecution of the church i've already read you many many examples of it in acts i won't read them again but i've even got more including the ones i read to you so let me just roughly run through the list here acts four acts five acts 27 acts five acts six acts seven acts nine acts 13 acts 14 acts 17 Acts 18, Acts 20, Acts 22, Acts 23, Acts 24, Acts 26, Acts 28, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 Corinthians 15, and Titus 1. You want to find find the land beasts persecuting the church? Look all through the book of Acts. And many times the persecution was of the church is because they didn't go along with the Jewish submission to the Roman Empire, the Jewish leader's submission to the idolatry of the Roman Empire. We go now to Revelation 13, 16, and 17. And he, that's the land beast, causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, in other words, everybody, to be given a mark on their right hand. Ah, the famous mark of the beast. It's not a computer chip, folks. To be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the sea beast or well, either the name of the beast, or, and that's the sea beast, or the number of his name. Now, notice the mark that's on the hand and the forehead. Let me give you a quote from the scholar Paul Spillsbury wrote a book for InterVarsity Press called The Throne, the Lamb, and the Dragon, A Reader's Guide to the Book of Revelation. Here's what he says, quote, The passage is also seen as an antithetical parallelism to the Jewish institution of Tefillin. Hebrew Bible text one. Warn- bound to the arm and the forehead during daily prayer. That's what the phylacteries, you recall that. Instead of binding their allegiance to God to their arm and head, the place is instead taken with people's allegiance to the beast. So basically, Jesus here in the, in the vision is playing off of what was supposed to be done properly in the Old Testament, but which is now being done idolatry as a copy. As David Chilton puts it, that, this putting a mark on the hand and the forehead is a satanic parody of the seal of God on the foreheads and the hands of the righteous. So let's focus on that word foreheads and hands, and we'll see the truth of the statement that this is this marking of the foreheads and hands of the righteous is a parody. Excuse me, the marking of the forehead, yeah the marking of the foreheads and the hands is an evil parody of the true marking of the forehands and hands of the saints. Revelation 3.12, Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God. Ah, there's a writing upon him. We'll assume it's on the forehead. In the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. And I will write upon him my new name. Okay, well, there's a marking of the righteous. It doesn't say forehead and hand, but we'll that that. Degree of precision will show up here a little bit later. Revelation 7, verses 2 through 4. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, to would have sealed the servants of our God. Where? In their foreheads. foreheads, And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And they were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So you get sealed where? On your forehead. There's a mark. Not the mark of the beast, but the mark of the lamb. Revelation 14, 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So that's how the seal was. It was the name of God written on your forehead. It shows that you belong to God. So there's a seal for the righteous. There's a seal of the righteous. Not the mark of the beast, but a mark of a righteous God. Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-8, these words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. There's hand and forehead again, and this is the famous passage in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema and this is the passage from which the Jews got the idea that they ought to put a leather box on their foreheads and on their hands. They took it literally, in other words, when it wasn't meant to be taken literally. It was just saying, look, put them on your hands so that you can do your activities guided by the hand of God. Put them on your foreheads so that you can be thinking about the word of God all the time. It wasn't meant to be taken literally, but it's a mark, a mark of the righteous Old Testament Jew marked on his hand and on his forehead. So there are the two places again, hand and forehead. Now, let's look at Ezekiel 9, 4 through 6. Pass throughout the city of Jerusalem, the Lord said to him, and put a mark, where? On the foreheads of the men who sign and groan over all the detestable practices committed in it. This is referring to the upcoming judgment of Babylon in 586 B.C. And Ezekiel says, but those who have not participated in idolatry are going to be sealed from judgment. They're going to have a mark on their foreheads. He spoke to the others in my hearing. Pass through the city after him and start killing. Do not show pity or spare them. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women as well as, as the children and older women, but do not come near anyone who has the mark. So, God's wrath will not fall on those who are sealed, who are marked by God. And where are the people in Ezekiel marked on their foreheads? Exodus twenty-eight thirty-six through thirty-eight. This is talking about the high priest regalia. You are to make a pure gold medallion and engrave it like the engraving of a seal, holy to the Lord. So there was a gold plate, a medallion, a badge, if you will, a plaque on the high priest's turban, and it says it had written on that plaque, holy to the Lord. So where was the plaque? It's on the forehead. Well, it was actually on the front of the turban, which was right over the forehead of the priest. Fasten it to a cord of blue yarn so it can be placed on the turban. The medallion is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's where? On Aaron's forehead. So that Aaron may bear the guilt connected with the holy offerings that the Israelites consecrate as all their holy gifts. It is always to be on his forehead. So there's a mark. A mark right on the forehead. Okay? So, as Salisbury, the evangelical scholar of the book of Revelation says that when John is talking here about the mark of the beast, this is an antithetical parallelism to the Jewish institution of marking people on their hands in the foreheads to seal them, to show that they belong to God. And so now here we're going to show that anybody who has the mark of the beast belongs to the beast, namely the sea beast. Now this mark of the beast, which was on the hand and the forehead of all the Jews... The Wikipedia informs us that a common preterist intep- interpretation of this mark is the stamped image of the emperor's head on every corner of the Roman Empire. I'm going to give you three quotes. Now, I don't know if these scholars are preterist or not, actually. I got them from Wikipedia. Here's one, a New Testament scholar, Craig C. Hill, quote, It is far more probable that the mark symbolizes the all-embracing economic power of Rome, whose very coinage bore the emperor's image and conveyed his claims to divinity e.g. by including the sun's rays and the ruler's portrait. It had become increasingly difficult for Christians to function in a world in which public life, including the economic life of the trade guilds, required participation in idolatry. So that's what's going on here. The mark of the beast means is the Jews were going to help enforce the Roman paganism that says you're not going to participate in economic life. You're not going to be a member of a trade guild. In fact, every time you spin a coin... It's going to show that you worship the emperor because the emperor's emperor's head is going to be right there in your hands as you hand over your money. You want to trade, you want to live, you use Roman coins and you join the trade guilds and bow down to the gods or offer incense or offer worship to the trade guild gods if you're going to make any money in Israel, you Jewish Christians. Here's another quote from Adela Yarborough Collins who at one time, maybe still does, taught at Yale Divinity School. She says this, The Mark of the Beast refers to the refusal to use Roman coins resulted in the condition that no man might buy or sell. So if you didn't have that Roman coin in your hand, the Mark of the Beast, then you're not going to buy or sell because you have to use Roman coins in order to buy or sell. Here's a quote from Craig R. Keister. He wrote a book for Urban, so I assume he's an, evangel- an evangelical scholar. I don't know these people. Hopefully, Urban says, not publishing heretics. But anyway, Craig R. Keister says this, quote, As sales were made, people used coins that bore the images of Rome's gods and emperors. Thus, each transaction that used such coins was a reminder that people were advancing themselves economically by relying on political powers that did not recognize the true God. So I think we can say this, enough people that say this, is that the mark of the beast refers to the fact that the Romans had complete control of the economy, and you can't buy or sell unless you are totally within that Roman system. Now, in the vision, the mark was either the name of the sea beast or the number of his name. Now, in actuality, it's Roman coins, assuming that interpretation is right, but in the vision, in your hand, in the hands of the Christians, or the hands or on the forehead of the Christians, there was a number, either the name or the number. I assume it's the number which stands for the name and so now let's look at that famous number that everybody knows about six, 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 and that's in Romans thirteen eighteen Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is six hundred and sixty-six. Now, first of all, why is it that it has to be someone who, is, who has understanding in order to calculate the number of the beast? Well, because you have to understand that when you do the gematria, the, the numerical calculations necessary to figure out who the beast is, you have to use Nero's Hebrew name. And, of course, the beast is Nero. I'm giving it away in advance here. The sea beast is Nero. The name of the sea beast is Nero. And, of course... Nero represents the Roman Empire because he's the emperor. Now, why is it the number of a man? Well, several suggestions. Man was created on the sixth day of the week. This number here is a collection of sixes, 666. It was Man was created on the sixth day of the week, so that's why it's called the number of a man. Some people say, well, six days out of the week we're given man to labor, so that's his work day, the number of a man. A Hebrew slave was in bondage for six years before his release. I don't know why that would make it refer to the number of a man, but some people selected that, uh, suggested that. Six cities of refuge were appointed for the accidental slaying of a man. Well, that's just so weak. It's best to say that man was created on the sixth day of the week, and that's why it's the number of a man. But for whatever reason, we can now know that six is the number of a man. Even as seven is divine perfection, six is the number of a man. Man, of course, is just short of God. He doesn't quite make it up to seven. He's down there at six. So by saying that, the number is that of a man is also the number of the beast. You notice here in verse 18, it says, calculate the number of the beast for the number is that of a man. So the number of the beast equals the number of that of a man. Why? Because the beast and the man can be identified because Nero is the emperor of the Romans. Now let's look at the number itself, 666. Now, notice in my translation here, New American Standard Bible, it says six hundred and sixty-six. It does not say six, 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 as everybody often says it. In the Greek, it's six hundred. The Greek key stands for six hundred. Plus sixty, the Greek epsilon, is sixty. Plus six, the Greek is sigma. So, it's key plus epsilon plus sigma. Six hundred, sixty, six. Now, Can we get some symbolism out of that? Well, 600 is the number of a man. Six multiplied by 10 squared. 10, of course, means many. You square it, that means even more many. So that shows completeness. Complete humanism, if you will. And, of course, 60 is the same thing. Six times 10, and six is the number of man. Six is the number of man. Six times 10 means he's humanistic even more. And then 600 is even more humanistic. 666, man, man, man. Humanism to the max. Humanism with its fist raised up in arrogance against God, kind of like America. Now, who does the 6-6 refer to? Now, you can make it refer to anybody you want to. You, You change your system of computation a little bit. Here are some examples that have been come up with by eschatological speculators. The Pope, Martin Luther, Napoleon, Adolf Hitler, Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan. Now, I must confess, when I saw a Campus Crusade for Christ, a futurist, eschatology film well, it was actually an evangelism film but they were talking about the Antichrist and doggone if they didn't put my favorite president's picture right there in the middle of that film and suggest that Ronald Reagan's name when you take A equals in the alphabet A equals 1 B equals 2 B equals 3 Ronald Reagan somehow you added it all up and it came out to 666 almost threw up that's probably the, the time that I said no there's something wrong with this idiotic system of eschatology that keeps getting crammed down my throat by brainwashed evangelical robots, automatons, Antichrist, Antichrist, pre-trib rapture, pre-trib rapture, black helicopters, black helicopters, 200 million man army, 10 nation. By the way, the 10 nations that are supposed to be the revived Roman Empire, they're not 10 nations anymore. Just thought I'd throw that out, throw that out. But anyway, it's all nonsense, folks speculative nonsense. So we shouldn't look for any possible solution. We should look for a relevant solution. Well, we've already seen that the sea beast is the Roman Empire. So what's relevant to the Roman Empire? It's emperor. It makes sense to give the number to Nero, Caesar. Now, let's see how the calculation is done so that 666 equals Nero. In Hebrew, remember, it has to be done in Hebrew. Those with understanding will know to do it in Hebrew. And by the way, they didn't do it in Greek because if they'd done it in Greek, Somebody intercepting the letter of Revelation being passed around would say, Hmm, this looks like John is preaching against the Emperor Nero. Maybe we ought to go kill him. So they had to do it in Hebrew because the average Roman wouldn't know Hebrew, wouldn't figure it out. But in Hebrew, as in most ancient languages, the alphabet served double duty. Each letter was a number. So any word had an associated numerical value. You just added up the value of the letters in the word, and there's your word. So the ancients could go back and forth naturally between word meaning and number. In fact, they probably saw and comprehended both aspects at once in a way that we can't do today. Now here's what F.W. Farrar, The Early Days of Christianity, written in 1882, says, quote, The Jewish Christian would have tried the name as he thought of the name, that is, in Hebrew letters. He's a Jewish Christian. And the moment he did this, the secret stood revealed. So at least some of the members of the church would know Hebrew, and they're going to figure out this is Nero. So let's do the calculation. Since we don't know Hebrew, at least I don't know Hebrew, and most of you probably don't know it either. Neron Kesar is the transliteration for into English of the Hebrew letters, the six Hebrew letters. Remember, Hebrew has no vowels. So leaving the vowels out, Neron Kesar is N-R-N-K-S-R. You add up those the numbers for those six Hebrew letters, and guess what it comes out to? 666. Now, most early Christians took 666 to refer to Nero, or at least a Roman emperor. Here's again a quote from F.W. Farrar from his book, The Early Days of Christianity, published in 1882. Quote, All the earliest Christian writers on the apocalypse, from Irenaeus down to Victorinus of Petal, and Commodian in the 4th, and Andreas in the 5th, and Saint Beatus in the 8th century connect Nero, or some Roman emperor, with the apocalyptic beast. Now, when I realized that Preterists thought that the beast was Nero, I said, well, I'd like to check out, see what, I need to learn something about Nero. He's a famous emperor in secular history anyway, pretty much of a monster, you know. So I said, well, I haven't ever read a biography of him. So I went to my college library Coker College, now Coker University Li- Library in Hartsville, South Carolina, and I just randomly pick up the first book on Nero, and I forgot the name. I think it's Edward Champlin is the guy who wrote this book, but I I, I don't know for sure, but he was a revisionist, and his thesis was is that Nero had gotten a bad name. He was not as bad as history judges. Now, Champlin doesn't go so far as to why. If, if I looked up Champlin's book on Amazon again, I don't have it, and the review said the the foreword, the preface, or the the blurb that talked about the book said that Champlin's not trying to whitewash Nero, but he's trying to say he's not bad as history judges. Well, the reason, as I read that book, the reason that he that the author didn't think that Nero was as bad as history judges is because history has been given a bad name to has has given a bad name to Nero because of the early church because they all thought he was the Antichrist. <laughs> And so he just got some bad press because the the Christians were everywhere and they said 666, that stands for Nero. Well, that kind of shows, you know, if everybody thought it was Nero, then maybe it was Nero. And maybe it's not Ronald Reagan. Ladies and gentlemen, with that sarcastic remark, I have finished Revelation chapter 13. In our next audio, we'll start on Revelation 14. We'll do the first 13 verses and we'll... Look at 144,000 Saints and Three Flying Angels. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.